around a lot, so I might be in and out on the mic, but I'll try to speak loud. So when I get in front, it might be real loud, and as I get over here, it might not be so loud. Um, but as, as Jay said, we moved. My wife and I, uh, I have three kids, an eight-year-old daughter, uh, Kayla, middle daughter's almost six, Kyleen, and I have a three-year-old son named Thomas. Uh, Thomas Reed, we named him after several people, including Thomas the Tank Engine, if that makes any sense to your parents. Um, I, I love my kids. My son likes to headbutt, and so I was an ex-wrestler. I might share a little bit about that tonight. Um, so we moved up here about at the same time that Thomas's moved into uh, Philly. Uh, we moved to New Jersey. Um, I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia. That's where my home was. My wife's a southern girl. Okay, so New Jersey was uh, is intimidating to her, uh, but she's unbelievably loving and, and She's doing a wonderful job witnessing to our neighbors uh, of the goodness and grace of God that would call someone into New Jersey and not out of New Jersey. Many uh, well-wishing Southern people asked us, why on earth would you move there? And we said, there's a people there in a great need. Um, one of the reasons why our church is called Jacob's Well is because God himself has always been a missionary God. Since the very beginning of time when human beings were created in the image of likeness of God, and human beings turned their back on God and, and were expelled from a garden. God has been pursuing a people from every people on the earth to bring together in one big family to be worshipers of His. And we're going to look at that today. The ultimate missionary act was when this very God put His own feet on planet earth in a, in a back cave where the animals were kept to become a human being, which we celebrate at Christmas time uh, with, with goofy artwork at times. But it was a very rustic setting. It wasn't a majestic setting where the very God who made all things entered into space, time, and history for us. And that same person spent 30 years of his life working a job, uh, probably apprenticing with his father as a carpenter, and then for three years was sent radically into the world where he engaged people and place and time in conversation, uh, in talks with Jesus. And we're going to look at one of these conversations that our brother just read out of John chapter 4. Jesus was kind of a guy for those three years who was on the move. In fact, his, uh, we're going to track some of his motion from Jerusalem to a place of less importance historically to this place called Jacob's Well. So I'm going to pray for us. Uh, we're going to jump in this thing. We've got a lot of verses. Uh, we're going to take it in chunks tonight. We're going to talk a little bit as we walk through. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you because you first sought us out through our family or through a friend or through the gospel entering our story in some way, you sought us out. You said that you were a, a God that was seeking worshipers and you, and you found us and we saw you and we want to believe now and follow. Uh, teach us what we need to see from Jesus and his walking into the life of a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well so that we might be changed, transformed, and live differently in light of who he is, in light of who he calls us to be. And we come to you, Father, in his good name. Amen. Last week, uh, last week you guys uh, were tracking this story in Jerusalem where a religious guy, who one of the people who ought to understand, was not understanding that God was not just about religion, but bringing new life to people. And now at this point in the story, we're going to track where this the, the, the heat starts to come on Jesus. There's a lot of things happening, and the religious leaders start to see that a bit of a movement is happening. Okay, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and get behind this thing so you guys can hear me. Um, what we're going to do is uh, begin, and uh, 
and then track right through. So verse one. Now, when Jesus had learned, uh, when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So he's entering, he's leaving the city of influence, the city of God, going back towards where he grew up in a place. Now he's going to pass through a suspicious location. We don't know for sure why he is leaving other than the Pharisees are starting to watch them. This guy John the Baptizer, uh, some of you may be familiar with the story God called this man named John in the wilderness and he was calling people to turn away from sin and to God and was baptizing many people. Jesus comes on the scene and John says now the one that I'm pointing to is the one we must follow. In fact, I'm not, even, I'm not even able to tie this guy's shoes. And he transfers the authority of his ministry to point at Jesus. And now Jesus has been uh, putting together this movement in Jerusalem. Now he leaves because perhaps it wasn't yet his time. Perhaps they were going to get him. There was an anointed time for Jesus to go to Jerusalem again, to die on a cross for us, but that time had not yet come. Verse 4. And then it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria, in a town called Samaria, called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was in his humanity, he was tired from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now there's interesting language here. It says Jesus had to pass through this area. I'm going to show you a little map I think I have for you guys here. This is, uh, this is the area. He was down here in Jerusalem. He's traveling back up this way. And it said he had to travel through the area. Now, geographically, this could have been that he had to, had to go that way because a straight line, you learn in ninth grade geometry, right? The shortest distance between two points is a straight line, right? But, but we don't realize at times that many Orthodox, believing Jewish people would not take the shortest distance. They would not go through Samaria. They would take a route that was much more like this. They'd come over this way, go all the way around, and head up this way to the area of Galilee. Why? Well, there, there was a, this reality we'll look at in a, in a moment that certain Jewish people did not want to have anything to do with that part of town. You know how it is. And we think we're different, right? That we can't pass through certain parts of town. We are the same way. But there was something going on here. This word necessity, necessity he had to, it indicates in the original language that it was kind of a divine necessity. Something was drawing him through this uh, region of, of the country that he, God had appointed him to go there. And it was about the sixth hour. Many times these wells were certainly just dug deep in the ground. Many times they were fed by an underground stream. And many times they would build just a small lip of a stone around the well so people wouldn't fall in. Okay, your kids wouldn't wander off and fall into a deep well. And so Jesus would have stopped in, in a wearied and tired state and taken a seat at high noon. Okay? Now, verse 7. Now, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So they went on a food run. They're going to get fish, tacos, I don't know. And uh, so the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? A woman of Samaria. And there's this little parenthetical that John gives us here. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now this parenthetical is an understatement. Okay, Because there's many barriers that Jesus is crossing here, not simply one. First of all, there's the ethnic barrier. Okay, The Samaritans considered themselves Jewish, but the Jewish peoples considered them less than Jewish, half Jewish, 
half-breeds, and they treated them like dogs. Okay, throughout history, we see tribalism, we, we see ethnocentrism, we see one group of people hating another people for the sake of God knows what. Yeah, we don't like their language, we don't like their religion, we don't like the way they look. And this was the issue here with Samaritans. I saw this um, when I went to, uh, up to Newark, okay? Uh, a couple friends of mine went to see a, an ultimate fighting mixed martial arts event in Newark. It wasn't a high promotion one. It was a kind of a, a low-ball ghetto one. And we just kind of rolled up into this gym. And I noticed something instantly, and I walked into this gym. On one side of the gym um, was all African-American people. On the other side of the gym was all Portuguese-Brazilian descendant people. Okay, And the two were not going to mix at all. And I asked one of my buddies, I said, hey, what's up with this, man? He says, they have no dealings with one another. Okay, Now, I was the only white kid in the black culture club, so I knew where I needed to go, so I rolled with the fellas, right? I was like, okay. And then the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu <laughs> Portuguese guys beat up all the brothers that night. I was bummed out. But anyway, this was, the, this was the kind of ethnic thing. They did not want to be with these people, let alone seen with someone in the daytime. There was also a religious boundary he's crossing here. The Jews and the Samaritans disagreed on many things religious in practice. For instance, the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, what's known as the Pentateuch, two books, first five books of Moses. Now, the Jewish people, as well as us, our Old Testament has a lot more books after that. We've seen a Jay read some calling us to worship here today. And so they disagreed on truth or doctrine being revealed from God. They also disagreed, as we're going to see in a moment, about the place of worship. Throughout history, worship has taken place in places, temples, shrines, etc. They had two different mountains that they thought you should worship on. And finally, I find this one very interesting. He crossed a very, very cultural social boundary in talking to this woman. First of all, this is a man talking to a woman in an ancient Near Eastern context. This was not done. If this was not your wife, you don't speak with her. In fact, an interesting fact of history in studying this, you'll see that many people in Jewish history, particularly Isaac and Jacob, met their wives at wells. So to be hanging out at noon talking to the ladies, people would have said, well, this is scandalous. It's like going to the club. What are you doing here talking to this woman? They would have had suspicious about his motives as a man. What was he doing? It wouldn't have been seen good in, in class, at class and culture, if you will. Now, the, the thing Jesus engages her with is something very simple, and I think sometimes profound. That God is willing to walk into people's normal, everyday life. And he just simply asks her for a drink. Very common, very common request. But he doesn't leave it there. Something that's very human, he wants to take a step deeper. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her. She says, you know, you don't have any dealings with me. Why are you asking this? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would give you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. Many times they'd have like a leather bucket the traveler and the sojourner would have on their hip to draw water at various wells upon their journey. He had none of this. We hope his disciples did. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock? And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, give me some of that. Sir, give me this water 
So I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. See, this woman was at the well drawing water at a conspicuously odd time of day. Most of the women would have come together in the cool of the day to draw water together. She was here at high noon alone. We learn why in a moment, but she was an outcast from the community. She was one that was not accepted by the people in society. She came when it was hot, and she had to do it every single day. Now, he, he brings out something in this culture, um, and I think our culture can get this because um, in that day they had different kinds of water, okay? And in our day we do, we do as well, okay? Uh, we have uh, regular water, and now you can have vitamin water, right? It's kind of a nice thing. You get brand name water that's better than normal water, even though most bottled water comes right out of some civic tap some way, and we give we pay a buck for it. I don't get it. But in the ancient world, they had different types of water. There was cistern water, which would be rain collected in, in so, so to, such a sort of pool um, in the house so they could drink it. It was okay. It was potable. But it wasn't like living water, which would be stream water or spring water that was flowing and moving and would have been refreshing and cool. And he says, this is the kind of living water. Now, she's still thinking this. She's thinking, living water. I need some of that. It's better than the kind of water from a cistern. See, he starts to speak from a, from a felt need she had to a deeper need. And she doesn't yet know it. She doesn't yet know it. He wants to get to her heart. Look at verse 16. And this may seem odd. Jesus kind of turns us sideways on her. He's talking about water and drinks. It's a pretty, pretty respectable conversation. And then all of a sudden he says, go call your man. And literally in the, in the text here it means go call your man. And come here. And the woman answered said, I have no husband. I have no man. And Jesus said, you are right in saying you have no husband. For you've had five men, and the one you have now is not your husband. You tracking what he's, what he's saying to her? He puts his finger right on the area of deepest hurt, most likely in her life, and her area of deepest sin. Now, in the ancient world, it'd be easy to say, well, this woman's a freak. She hangs out with too many dudes. She's gone through serial relationships one after another. But in this world, also, men were permitted to send a woman away. So we don't know all the biography here. What we do know that she's had failed relationship after failed relationship, and she's living in an immoral relationship right now. And I can imagine she's thinking, man, we're talking about getting a drink. And all of a sudden, he's dropping this on me? What's this guy doing? He knew she needed truth about God and about herself. And he knew she needed real love from God. Not the disposable kind she'd been shown by men. Look at verse 19. He got personal with her, didn't he? She's going to change the subject and just talk about religion. Okay. It's real easy, right, when someone gets personal, when God puts his hand on our heart to want to change the subject. And she goes right to a religious discussion that was much more easier for a Jew and a Samaritan to have. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know details about me. You know my business. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. See, this was one of those religious disagreements. The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. They worshipped on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Which one should it be? She's going to just a discussion that was easy to have. She got it away from her heart. She tried to at least. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship 
the Father. She wanted to talk about the Father's taught us something. He changes that and says, the Father will be worshipped, and it's beyond geography. It's beyond space and place. It wants, he wants it to happen in our lives. You worship what you do not know. We should worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jew. From the seed of Abraham would come someone to deliver God's people and gather in people from the nations. But the hour is coming, verse 23, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman says, I know that when Messiah comes, He was called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. We'll trust Him. Jesus said, I who speak to you am He. Now this would have put her in sort of a, an emotional, spiritual gridlock. Because she just said, the one who is coming will tell us. And he's saying, I am that person and I'm telling you. What does he say to her in this passage? He says that God, okay, the creator of all things, is seeking people. Now, I, I use this illustration to, to kind of talk about this. And you guys might, may or may not track it. I don't know. Anybody like science fiction? Movies, okay. Don't be honest, right? Don't hate. I like it. Don't call me a geek or whatever. <laughs> I love sci-fi. I love the X-Men movies, mutants, all that stuff. I want to share with you how God is not seeking people. Okay? There's a scene, I think it's in X-Men 2, where um, Professor X has this device called Cerebro. You guys know what I'm talking about? And in it, he can put this helmet on, and he can see all the mutants and all the normal people in the, in the world. They're either red or white. I forget which one is which. Okay? In this, he does not know where people are. So he has to seek them using this device. This is not the way God seeks people. God is not in the world going, let me see if I can find some people out there. No, this one looks like he might like me. And oh, she's not. Okay, now I'm going to seek them. That is not the way God seeks people. In fact, God is very focused and intent on seeking people to be his worshipers, and he will not cease the pursuit until they become his. There's an intensity to the seeking of God. There's a, there's a compassion and passion driving God to, to save and rescue his people from every tongue, tribe, and nation on the earth. I saw this kind of intensity at Christmas last year when my daughter, my five-year-old, uh, Kyleen, uh, my, you know, Grandparents love to give kids stuff, right? They do, like, whatever it might be. You know, food, toys, clothes. Some things are helpful that your grandparents give, some things not so much, right? Um, there's a simple thing that my mom always gives my kids. It's, it's called Pez. You know what Pez is? It, it's really drugs for little kids is what it is. And it has a little, you know, it has a little dope dealer head that pops it out. Gives, gives it, sometimes it looks like Santa Claus, you know. And, 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 and my mom was to give it to a kid and let, it, let him eat all of it at one time. Because if you eat them, they're addictive. It is like, oh, i got to keep doing this too. And, and my daughter had gotten this Pez thing. She ate all the candy, all three packs, all through the, the Santa Claus head on this thing. And then she lost it. And I went into her room. She was disgruntled. She, she didn't know. Uh, she was really upset. And I was like, what's going on? Kai, Kai, this is my girl. Her name's Kylie, and I call her Kai, sweetie Kai. I said, what's wrong, sweetie Kai? What's wrong with you? You're, you're distraught. You're upset. She goes, I lost my Pez and I cannot find it. I was like, well, what are you going to do about it? And she said, I'm going to look everywhere until I find it and it's mine again. This is much more the way the heart of God seeks out his people. 
He is intent on finding us. Raider has no love than to lay down his life for our friends. We don't love God. He first loved us. It's because he went on a mission. He came in the world. He stepped onto Jacob's well. That God pursues us into relationship. And then we find him lovely when he shows up at the well. And we believe. And God seeks out people in that way. He says he's looking for people to worship in spirit and truth. Last week, Jay talked about this idea of a new birth. Where there was spiritual disconnection. There is now a born againness. And that's not the kooky-looky people, right? It's the people alive to God. And that God brings new birth to people. Spiritual worship is now possible in relationship with God. In truth, connecting with who God is. Not making up God in the way we want Him to be. Not making up some sort of conception and then making a religion about it. This is God revealing Himself in truth to us in personal encounter. To reconcile and bring us together. The Christ, the anointed one, that guy, he will sort all that. And Jesus says, I'm going to sort it all out. Because I'm here in living flesh today. Look at verse 27. What was a religious discussion just changed radically. Because Jesus is not content to have a philosophical discussion of religion with us. He wants to change our lives. Verse 27. Just then, the disciples came back and they marveled. Okay, they're freaked out. He's talking with a woman. But no one said anything. What do you want, woman? What do you see? Or why are you talking with her? Okay, they thought it though, right? They thought. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. What she came there to do. This is what she thought she was living for, to do this day after day. But she leaves that behind. And she went away into the town, probably the place of disgrace for her. She went into the town and said to the people, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And this question is like, this can't be the Christ, can it? She's not yet certain, but she's certainly excited. And something's moving her into action. And then they went out of the town and were coming to him. They were coming to him. Something is happening. Let's move on. Verse 31. Meanwhile... The disciples were urging him, Rabbi, you need to eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples said to him, I love the disciples. They don't know what's going on. Right? They're kind of like window dressing in the story. They're just kind of, you know, Moller and Curly goofing off laughing. Right? So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? You know, they're wondering if it was delivery or DiGiorno. They don't know what it is. And they're like going, what is going on? This guy is talking about he has food they don't know about. He's got something on the mattress. Jesus said to them, again, he takes a very simple thing like food to teach his friends at this moment. He doesn't mock them. He doesn't say, you guys are a bunch of idiots. He says, I have food. I have food that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are four months that wait and into the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See the fields, they are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages for gathering in the fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. One sows, another reaps. There's a cooperative effort of the family of God that brings people into his kingdom. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others had labored. They laid a foundation. And you have entered now into their work. God's purposes from all time were being realized in their midst. And that holds true for each one of us. I, I'm so fearful. I, I became a Christian in 1992. Um, I, was a, I was a college wrestler studying applied science and physics at UNC Chapel Hill. 
And I became a believer in Christ, not because I was looking for a religion or trying to find a philosophy to fit my life. I certainly wasn't looking for a place to be on Sunday mornings because usually I was sleeping. Okay? But God entered my life. And, and one of the things that puzzled me, and one of the things that scares me to death, even about new churches like yours and ours, is that we'd be people to content to come listen to a good message and sit in chairs and not realize the massive plan of God that's going on right now in Philly, in Jersey, that we get to be a part of. Jesus is saying, you're entering into that labor. We have that work. We have that privilege. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Now, a woman's testimony wasn't worth much in the ancient world. And certainly this woman, who was an immoral woman, her testimony would have been of less, but she had saw a man that told her everything she ever did, and she testified to him, and they believed her. He told me that everything I ever did. Verse 40, So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer simply because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. One of my favorite quotes about Jesus um, that speaks to his wildness, his untamableness, the fact that he's not a normal person that walked the earth. But these divine chats he had, these encounters he had with people were life-changing in nature. This is a quote from a Scottish guy, a guy named James Stewart. I love this quote. I heard, heard it first from a man named Robbie Zacharias. If you're not familiar with Robbie, you need to read all everything he's ever written. I'm just saying that. He, I'm just saying. He's Indian, too. This is from a Scottish man, James Stewart, speaking of Jesus. Jesus was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke on coming with the, on the clouds of heaven with the very glory of God. He was so austere that the evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and little ones nestled in his arms. No one was half so com kind or compassionate to sinners Yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He saved others at last, but he did not save himself. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts which confront us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. Said Mount Road, one of the blessings you have this fall is to watch him to see him and i just want to close here today by asking us what do we see in this story many times when we're given a narrative in the bible the story is the message it's designed to do something to us and i just see four things i want to share with you as we close about jesus first of all uh, human beings, we typically see the world uh, between good people, bad people, white people, black people, this kind of people, that kind of people. We far too often think that uh, we have to make ourselves good, and then perhaps we can come to God. What I want you to see in this story is this woman was not good. No one would have said that, but God goes to her. And I believe in Jesus, we see that our mission in life and path should be the same. We shouldn't bifurcate the world into 
good people, bad people. I don't hang out with these people. I hang out with these people. But we should see ourselves as the Father sent me into the lives of people. So I send you, Jesus says to us. So we walk into the life of people. Secondly, uh, God interacts with real people in real places around the normal courses of life. Normal things. Not, you know, when everyone's flying out the windows in some ecstatic view of the rapture or whatever. But God comes around water and meals and friends and computer programs and whatever it might be that occupies your day. Now, I shared this with our church a few weeks ago. You know, when I was a kid, I, I typically think too much as a person as it is. I think all the time. It's a, it's a blessing and a curse and it causes you not to sleep as much as you ought, I think. But when I was a kid, I, I had a few moments before I was a Christian, before I ever uh, got close to God. The closest I got to God in high school was in 11th grade. I read, I think, this French dude named Voltaire and declared myself a deist like Thomas Jefferson and there might be a God. It has nothing to do with my life. That's kind of the closest I got to it. But every now and again, I'd have these moments that just kind of interrupted me. You know, because, you know, my worldview at the time was that we were kind of collections of matter in space-time, evolving slowly, becoming this goo to that goo, and now it's you, and that was kind of my life. And, and, and I'd just get on with it, build airplanes, do something productive with yourself. It's kind of my worldview. My dad was an atheist guy. And I remember this one particular moment when, uh, I mean, you feel conscious. You know, you feel like you're reflecting on what the heck is going on in life. And I remember one time taking out the trash. Um, I was rolling a trash can on, thinking about, man, I'm mad, I don't want to take the trash out. My parents have made me do all this stuff. And then I thought, I'm alive and thinking about, like, what is this world about? Isn't that weird? It's weird, isn't it? God breaks in. C.S. Lewis called it being surprised by joy, looking at a flower, and then all of a sudden being freaking out, wondering what really is going on in this world. I think in those moments, God wants to speak to us. God interacts with us real places, real time, normal courses of life. Thirdly, God doesn't avoid our sin. In this story, He goes right at it. Talk and chit-chat about water. God goes to the place of her deepest pain and deepest need and puts His finger right on that. And He says, Reed, what do you, what do you want to do with this? And I think in those moments, we either run from God or we realize we need His grace and forgiveness. When God comes to press you on sin, it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. It's His favor and mercy and grace that leads to life. Okay? Godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, leads to life. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Don't run when God puts His hand on your sin. Repent. It's a gracious gift from Him. We see that in the life of this woman. And then finally, through one life, God transforms many people. At the beginning of this day, nobody could predict what was going to happen. At the beginning of our lives, we don't know what's going to happen. From this point on, as a church, you don't know what will happen. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, Pastor, you need to pray for him because he thinks about it a lot. He probably gets anxious about it sometimes. He needs to pray about that. But through one life, we see many people transformed in this town. You know, I, I've experienced this in my own life, uh, traveling a journey. I, I became a Christian as a jo college jock who also hung out with the nerds and... Um, Many, many times on my own college wrestling team, I saw this happen. Um, but I wanted to share you a story uh, about what God did uh, when I graduated. I got married a couple weeks after I graduated to a, a woman named Casey. She was an All-American soccer player at UNC Chapel Hill. They won 15 national titles in a row. Um, she's got hardware, rings, I don't. I was kind of mediocre. It was pretty good, but she's a lot better than me. And we got married, and we went on staff with an organization called Athletes in Action, where we worked with college sports people. 
Okay, now, just to give you a little insight, I grew up with an ex-Irish Catholic atheist dad who told me that soccer was a communist sport for sissies. Okay, but he, he used a word for sissies that was very politically incorrect, so I won't use it. But he said that's what soccer is, okay? So those people play, we football and whatever. So that was my mindset about this sport, soccer. Now, I married a soccer player and went to watch the girls at UNC, which me and Ham was on my wife's team. You know, you could see her in Nike commercials and such. They were very good. They ran around everybody, won like eight to nothing. So that made soccer fun because they actually scored and everyone just didn't run around for an hour and a half and score no goals. I hate that. And I said, take away the goalies. It'll make the sport better. But So I went to this evolution where I said, okay, women's soccer. That's pretty cool. That's all right. I make my girls. If I have kids, they play soccer, not my son. Well, my first assignment with Athletes in Action was to the University of Kentucky. Kentucky was a scary place just because it was called Kentucky. And I went to this place, and uh, there's a basketball religious thing between UNC and Kentucky, if you don't know about it. So they mocked me just because I had Tar Heels tattooed on my leg, and they just beat up on me constantly. I was like, why am I here? And then the director of our ministry on campus said, here's your first team that you get to work with, Reed, the men's soccer team. And I'm like, oh, great. What am I going to say to those guys? Why do you bounce up on your toes and bounce balls off your head like little sissies? What do, what do I say to those guys? I had to repent. God needed to change me. Obviously, obviously, there was one guy on the team named Lee Baker. Lee was the only Christian on the team at the time. I met him. I said, oh, Lee, we're going to hang out with your soccer team. We're going to have a Bible study. He goes, good, man. They all smoke weed. They're not coming and he wasn't kidding, man. They were they all weak. <laughs> and I said, well, how about we pray about it? How about we say, you're the one God on this team. Perhaps you are placed in this time, space, and season for his purposes and his time. And I started going to soccer games. Man, I hated it. I hated it. But then one by one, we started to see God do something. There was interest coming around. And then the craziest guy on the team happened to want to come and talk about Jesus with me. And then he started recruiting guys to a Bible study at my wife's house, just saying, uh, my, hey, his wife cooks food, and she's cool, and she played with me and him. We started having these dudes come over. Well, I couldn't tell really what was going on, but we talked about Jesus a lot. And then the winter of that year, we went away to a retreat. Now, for me, as a non-Christian guy's retreats were weird enough, so I knew when these guys went, they were going to feel like, where did I go? Because okay, you usually go somewhere back in the woods, someplace, and people sing and they do things. They clap their hands and close their eyes and hold their hands up and sing, yell hallelujah. That's weird when non-Christians and then run around that. So I took these guys with me. And I tell you what, we had the greatest time. And we're singing these songs. And I'm, I'm worried about these guys the whole time. What are they thinking, Lord? Are we, are we freaking them out? And I remember we had this... Uh, this 260-pound discus thrower with us, and all soccer players, the only ones that went from our school at the time to this retreat, uh, the soccer players all wanted me to fight the discus, discus player. Because I was a wrestler, right? And so they're like, when are you going to fight? And I'm like, okay, we'll fight after this session. So we listen to the guy <laughs> preach the Bible, and we go back to the room to fight, okay? And, and I'm game, right? I take my shirt off, you know, no girls around. We took shirts off, and the big guy, he's way bigger than me. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to impress the guys. We're going to fight. Now, there was a little guy named Billy Dwyer, who was, on, who was on the soccer team, who stood up in the enclave. You know, there's a sink and a mirror and a dorm room. He stood up in that because he's kind of small with a video camera going, fight, 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 fight. <laughs> these were these guys. And so I'm beating up this guy. I'm choking him. And then he gets me under my body and he picks me up. And when and your feet are gone, you can't do anything. 
He picks me up, and I'm, and I'm going towards the glass window, and I'm going, uh-oh, this is not going to end well. And I'm just praying, oh, God. And I was running the conference, too, so I knew I, knew I was going to have to talk to retreat center people, pay for a window, and think of lacerations. And so I go into the window, and it doesn't, it doesn't break, and we go back, and then I get my feet bound, and I just beat the mess out of Joe. At the, at the end of this retreat, I asked these guys, I'm just curious, man. You know, what are you guys thinking? Um, they're thinking, we're glad you beat up Joe. But they said, you know what? We feel so close to God right now. And we thank God for Lee Baker on our team. We've been watching him for a year. And I tell you what, one life, one life, you think God can't do much with you. You're small, you're insignificant, you're, you're an outcast woman at a well. But you know what Lee Baker knew was what wasn't about him. He knew it was about Jesus. But you know what? I looked across the room at that guy and just winked at him and said, you know what? Faithfulness with little God can do much. And we see a whole town transformed to the glory of God. Samaritans come to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we are humbled uh, by your goodness that you are a missionary God who come into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. You seek out people to capture our hearts, to delight us with yourself so that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. But, oh God, you don't leave us alone, but you, you come with us and you lead forth with us and we follow you into the world. Into a world many times it's full of confusion and pain and false idolatry and worship of all manner of things except you. But Father, you teach us one life matters in your hand. You can do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. And I ask that for all of our lives as we as a family serve you. That you'd use us corporately as a church. Pray you'd use our lives individually where we work, where we live, places where we transportation, coffee, wherever it might be, that we would have hope that in your time many, many, many people labored and they entered at the time of harvest. We don't know your timing but we know you're a faithful, loving, seeking God. Use us, Father. Use us for your glory and your kingdom, for your name's sake. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.